went down to the river to watch the fish swim by. But I got to the river so lonesome I wanted to die. Oh, Lord. And then I jumped in the river, but the doggone river was dry. She's long gone and now I'm lonesome blue. Hello and welcome to Long Gone, the podcast. My name is Ryan Hetzer and um, once again, uh, excited for uh, an episode here. I um, have talked about this in the last couple of episodes, but basically with the new Cardinal season ready to go, I kind of have made uh, a commitment to trying to build up this uh, little podcast uh, venture. I know everyone out there has one these days, but um I've kind of committed myself to doing as best as I can to build mine up. And so as part of that, I've um, reached out to a number of different bloggers and podcasters in the the community that that I've really enjoyed following over the past two years or so that I've been involved uh, blogging. Uh, And um, recent days, I've had a few of the, the opportunity to talk with a few of these folks. And again, today, I'm very excited to have Tara Wellman with me and Tara is a major contributor over at Birds on the Black. She uh, writes a regular blog uh, in the bird seed section. It does a regular podcast called Chirps. And she, uh, all over the, the community in terms of Cardinal Twitter and uh, podcasting, blogging, you name it. Um, a recent uh, wonderful series that she wrote on the, some of the minor league contraction possibilities and news and just um, a, a, a very uh, influential member of that community, and really my pleasure to have you on with me today, Tara. How are you? Thank you so much. That's quite the introduction. <laughs> I will try to live up to that, but I'm happy to be here, always ready to talk baseball, especially now that there's, well, not real baseball to talk about, but we're, we're closer. Well, I heard John Gant and and Kwang Hyung Kim played catch today, so that's, you know, that's yeah. news. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, well, I, I just one more time wanted to, to say that uh, I've been really overwhelmed with the reception and, and kind of reaching out to people like yourself and just being willing to come on and uh, and chat with me. So, yeah, um, well, I sent you a, a, a note ahead of time. I've been with these series of, of different uh, guests that I've had in recent days. I've tried to kind of knock around the the diamond a little bit just so that for my own purposes, I'm not having kind of the same discussion. And so um, I had a chance to talk about the pitching staff um, with uh, Daniel uh, Shopta over at uh, Cardinal Conclave. And I talked with Kyle about what else uh, prospects. And then I talked with uh, Russ Robinson. We talked about the Cardinal Hall of Fame. So today um, with you, I had, uh, said I'd like to talk about the Cardinal outfield. It's a Certainly um, a hot topic going into the 2020 spring training, but I'd also like to um, go back and do a little bit of a retrospective, kind of going back to uh, what would be the 2015 season, which is essentially five seasons ago, and just look at the the course of decisions that have been made by the front office and some some of the kind of 
oddities that have occurred over that course of time. Uh, I'll start off with a little trivia, not a little challenge question for you. Can so 2015 Cardinals uh, won 100 ball games. Do, can you name uh, the top five plate appearance uh, leaders for outfielders on that team? And if that's too easy for you, can you do the order um, from you know highest to lowest on the plate appearances? Well, I did. You did send me uh, the the subject matter ahead of time, so I yeah. did at least remind myself who played the most innings in okay. the outfield that year. <laughs> okay. Um, so Matt Holiday, Peter Borges, and Jason Hayward. Wow, yeah. that's a throwback. Um, looking at at those guys as your most regular outfielders, and uh, I would imagine as far as plate appearances, uh, it would be Holiday, Hayward, Borges if we're talking about those three. Um, but I'm, I would have to go back and, and remind myself who was even on that team aside from those three <laughs> playing in the outfield spots because it seems like such a long time ago. Yeah, um, it, it does. But at the same time, um, it kind of is funny because a couple of other uh, guys on that uh, 2015 team in terms of plate appearances, uh, along with Hayward and Holiday. Uh, and Borges, who you mentioned, but uh, Grichik was also in the mix there. He had 350 plate appearances for that team. Uh, Piscotti uh, had 256 plate appearances. And Tommy Pham um, also checked in with just about 173 plate appearances. So kind of where I want to start this is even though going back five years, um, and we can kind of um, deconstruct it from there, but I was struck by the fact that, you know, asking you this question, would you feel better about the 2020 outfield of Grichik, Tommy Pham, and Stephen Piscotti as, as your three guys versus what the Cardinal outlook looks like uh, going into 2020? Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting way to think about it right because each one of those guys had some pretty tremendous success at times in their moments as the starting player in one of those outfield spots I think the the trick is none of them had those moments all at the same time right. so it's hard to kind of know and sort of you, you run into this when you think back about things and try to project what could have been um, but it is an interesting thought exercise to, to think about the success that each of those guys had individually. And yeah, if you took their best moments as starting players for the Cardinals and pooled them together, I think you would be onto something pretty great as far as the, the dynamic of those players offensively, as well as their range defensively. The steadiness of Stephen Piscotty is something that I find myself missing a little bit. Mm -hmm. And while the Cardinals have filled in all of those spots with, for the most part, guys who have potential to to equal some of that, it's been a bit of a roller coaster since then. And I don't think it's unfair to look back at some of those moves and say, wow, what could have been with the incredible competitive nature and raw skill of Tommy Pham combined with the athletic ability of Randall Gritchick, as long as, you know, he doesn't have an injured elbow and can't throw the ball mm. from center field. Mm. And the, that steadiness that I mentioned of Steven Piscotti and none of them, none of the three of them have turned into, you know, top five MVP finishers in baseball. So, you know, there's some level of, uh, yeah, but, 
they aren't the the game changers that someone else might be, but it is a little bit hard to watch the roller coaster of the last few years and not think, huh, they've had success in other places. Why couldn't they have that success in St. Louis? Sure. I mean, even if we look at 2019, of course, all of them playing in a different uh, environment, but, you know, Gritchick did hit 31 homers and 80 RBIs. Now the, the strikeout rate was is still you know way up there as it was during his time in St. Louis, but um, and, and then a Tommy Pham had you know, 21 homers, 68 RBIs, but also stole 25 bases. And now Piscotty had a down year; he was um, in off and on the injured list. But in 2018, which is you know certainly not very long ago at all. Um, you know, he had a, a very nice season with the Oakland A's, 27 homers, 88 RBIs, kind of more like his 2000, um, I believe, 16, maybe 17. I might have that mixed, but season that he had with the Cardinals uh, where it really looked like he was primed to be a, uh, a linchpin in the lineup, but then it just didn't work out. But um, so, yeah, I mean, even if you look at recent history, those guys have still been productive. Um, I wanted – so – when we think about um, just a, kind of an Ozuna Grichik comparison, real quick, because you could you kind of looked at that off season where Grichik was moved, and then um, the Cardinals then also brought in Ozuna. There, those two things uh, collided in a way. It was almost you, you could almost kind of say that Ozuna um, was brought in to take the place of. Uh, Gritchick. And over the two seasons that they've been playing for different teams, Ozuna accumulated 52 homers, 177 RBIs with a 775 OPS. Whereas uh, Randall Gritchick actually out homered Ozuna with 56, uh, less RBIs with 141, but also uh, just almost an exact uh, replica of the OPS with a 770. So um, yeah, just interesting to kind of compare some of these experiences and, and how things have gone based on moves that the front office has made. Yeah. And the Ozuna thing has always been interesting to me because, you know, he, coming off of the spectacular year he had in Miami and then trying to figure out how much of that you could expect to be a regular occurring event as opposed to a one-off season where he was at his best and I think the the projected value of someone like a Randall Gritchick versus a Marcelo Ozuna is going to look different on paper. But the Ozuna thing, I mean, he, he was always really streaky. You know, he was mm-hmm. never going to be the consistent guy that, that you put in the cleanup role and know that, you know, as consistently as any Major League Baseball player can be uh, yeah. in, a, in a game of, of failure, as has become quite cliche, but it's true. Um you know, he was never that guy and he would go on a tear for a few weeks and look like you couldn't throw anything by him. And then as I was telling somebody yesterday, I think there were times where I could have gotten him out because mm-hmm. if he threw something soft and in the dirt, he was going to swing at it. So, you know, there were the, the two players profile quite differently when you kind of look at how they're successful when they are, but yeah, the overall results don't show a ton of an upgrade from yeah. Marcelo Zuno, which is, not the way I'm sure the front office likes to look at that move because uh, you'd like to think that one of the top free agents or or 
players that would have been one of the top free agents had he continued with the success he had in Miami would be an upgrade over a Randall Grichik type who is one of those that at times felt like he had all the potential in the world, but was just never able to wrangle it mm. in any sort of um, sustainable way. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's always the the risk, right? As you, you opt for maybe the higher ceiling and hope that they get somewhere close to that as opposed to, you know, staying closer to the floor. Yeah, and sure. that you know, didn't work out probably quite like they planned. Would it be fair to... Um put the the criticism on the front office that they've just been uh, a bit impatient. Um, yeah, I think when you look at, you know, letting Gritchick go uh, to bring in Ozuna, then, you know, you had the, the trade of Piscotti. Um, and, and in some ways, Pham took that sort of spot over with that bats wise, because you also had the signing of Dexter Fowler mixed in there. But then they went ahead and a year after him having a fantastic year, um, not even a year after, they, they trade Tommy Pham. And so it just feels, it all feels uh, to me uh, a little bit quick trigger, uh, a little bit, you know, not necessarily letting um, some things play out. Now I know there's a managerial situation and change and all that too that plays a, a bit of a factor. But it, it all just feels to me when you think about Gritchick, Piscotti, um, and Tommy Pham, those three in particular, it, it just feels that um, they, they really were a bit impatient with the overall um, process of evaluating those, those guys. Yeah, I've often wondered and said as much many times on many different podcasts uh-huh. that I, I wonder about the evaluation process within the Cardinals organization. For so many years, it seems like they overvalue their own prospects so much that, you know, they won't use them as essentially currency to make the major league team better. But then we see this weird thing that they do where they'll bring a guy up for a season and a half and then trade him for such a a, a seemingly insignificant return that you kind of feel like, okay, why, why did you spend the last four seasons refusing to trade this, this potential talent. And then before you allow it really the growth and the space to grow at the major league level, you trade it for minor league talent. Like it just doesn't make sense the way that they've gone about moving some of those pieces. I mean, the Steven Piscotty thing obviously had the the family um, connection and, and the issue with his mom and, mm-hmm. and some level of humanity attached to that trade more than just the business of baseball. But you're right. It's been strange watching the outfield shuffle without a whole lot of seemingly reasoning for moving the pieces that they were moving. Right. Because mm-hmm. look, I love Harrison Bader, but I don't know that he's the guy that you push everyone else out of the way for, or at least mm-hmm. he hasn't proven to be as of yet. So it's not like they have, you know, if it's Dylan Carlson, right, and everyone's talking about him as the the best hitting prospect since Albert Pujols, maybe you push some of those guys out of the way because even at their yeah. ceiling, they're not going to be what Dylan Carlson can be. There wasn't that guy. I mean, again, you look at the direct comparison since bringing Marcelo Zuna in, not a significant upgrade. So it's I think, to be honest, in part, some of those moves were – more about the fact that the team was trying to find a way to upgrade without costing them a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And they felt like they could get an upgrade, but it was going to take one of those outfield positions. 
So rather than do something that cost, uh, you know, a Matt Carpenter or that cost Colton Wong or whatever the case might be, pick an infield spot. It was easier to move an outfielder when they have 75 of them (laughs) in the organization than to move one of those core pieces of the infield. So I think that's part of it. It was just sort of a, a matter of what do we have a whole lot of that we can that we can trade in order to try to get better in some of these other areas. It just unfortunately hasn't really worked out that way in most of those cases. Now, I think the jury's still out on some of those last pieces that came back in um, in some of those trades and some of the prospects that we'll, we'll continue to see more of. But they, they haven't been moves that made the major league team dramatically better in the moment. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a lot harder to take as far as the fans are concerned and your immediate reaction to a trade. Yeah, I think and then our little um... – analysis we're trying to do here i do think that that's a factor in looking at you know who they were able to turn those players into and randall gritchick with you know leone not dominic leone not really having a a major impact and connor green was was uh you know never pitched in the majors for the cardinals and then you know yara munoz has been a decent little utility player but still at this point you don't know quite what he'll be max schrock has has uh you know labored in the in the minors I think he was <clears throat> excuse me exposed to the rule five this past off season and and yeah for the for Tommy Pham it's it's still a little bit out there because you know Henesis Cabrera still I like his potential and so on but uh, but th- at the same time too um you know you mentioned you know trying to turn some of that some of that uh surplus into talent and it's almost like that that, that train is still going because just this off season right. you know they they move they moved Martinez and Rosarina, and uh, Jose uh, Adolis Garcia was was allowed to walk for virtually nothing. Now I, I don't know that he would have remained on the forty man anyway. But um, yeah, so it, it just seems like they're still kind of trying to figure that whole thing out. And yeah, <laughs> it's been complicated. That's for sure. Trying to move pieces around, and you know, I think part of this also comes back to this idea that the Cardinals are so resistant to pursuing the top tier talent and they're far more intrigued by kind of that second tier down but the the risk factor while maybe not financially greater is far higher there as far as production right because you're you're going after players that maybe had a year or two where they looked like they were the best at their position or you know one of the top five or top ten at their position instead of going after someone who year in and year out, you know, they're going to be the best option. And sure, that might save you in some, some um, player return as far as a trade value. It might save you some dollars in the long run, but it's almost more of a risk. I mean, look at Brett Cecil, right? No one could have seen that coming and predicted him to basically miss the entirety of the last two seasons with a variety of issues. But they went after Brett Cecil instead of maybe the better option, right? Mm-hmm. To try to save a little money, to try to be more prudent, to try to, you know, save space for future contracts, whatever the argument is, there's sort of this idea in the last handful of years that it's it's more value to go after the second tier option that might be good enough instead of going after more of the short thing. And I think that's part of what results in this, merry-go-round of Mm -hmm. players in those positions right because then you have 
a Dexter Fowler contract that doesn't really allow you a whole lot of flexibility in moving Dexter Fowler if he's no longer one of the best three or four outfielders that are your options. So you play Dexter Fowler and then you move one of those other pieces and then you're left to wonder, are we going to regret this five years from now when you look back at like we are with Randall Gritchick and Steve mm-hmm. Piscotty and Tommy Pham? Yeah, sure. It, it, I had this as, as um, exactly the point you're making. I had this as one of my notes uh, in this whole process of talking about this. And yeah, I mean, the, you have to also factor in some of the non I, I I called it, you know, not engaging in terms of, you know, we've all moved on from Bryce Harper, but uh, there was, you know, a period of time where, you know, a lot of Cardinal fans were, were very interested in, in, in at least uh, putting in some kind of serious offer to him or serious discussions with him that they didn't seem to be interested in that. Even a guy like Ozuna, I mean, he, he made it clear that he wanted to return and he would have represented some of that kind of certainty that you're talking about. Um, in terms of production, uh, then even a couple of the other outfield uh, options this offseason, like Castellanos and so on, they've they've um, you know they've opted to stay away from some of that and just not engage. Um, I wanted to go back also real quick to Piscotty, a point that I've always and I and I want to be very uh, clear and careful about the way I say this because I mean certainly. Um, you know, with, with all my sympathy and respect for what he and his family went through with, with his mother's illness and so on. But I, I do sometimes uh, get bothered a little bit by the, the narrative that I think gets, gets put out there a lot when it comes to Piscotti that, you know, the sort of the Cardinals participated in this, um, you know, sort of humanitarian effort uh, to, to get him back. And I think, you know, it, it ignores he was having a down year now. How much of that was because of his, you know, dealing with his personal issues and dealing with uh, that that issue? But I just, I guess, had he been producing at the level he was the previous year, the Cardinals probably keep him and don't make that trade. So um, that's just uh, I've always kind of held that in the back of my head with this with that narrative that you know that they that he was moved simply for uh, to, to get him closer to home. I think there was certainly a little more to that because he, he was uh, having a very, very down year that, that year that they traded him or the year after they traded him. Yeah. I mean, if he was playing like Mike Trout, they're probably not going to be like, yeah, but you <laughs> yeah. probably want to be close to your mom. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's certainly an argument to be made. I think the, the, the situation with his family certainly played into perhaps where they traded him um, or what they were willing yeah. to take in return. I think it played into the, the entire structure of that deal. But there certainly was no um, – th- there wasn't you know this mass outcry about moving Stephen Piscotty, I don't think, because he hadn't become the centerpiece of the offense. He mm-hmm. was a nice complementary piece. But what the Cardinals still needed was, well, in part, a leadoff hitter in theory, to let Matt Carpenter move down the lineup. But that wasn't going to be Stephen Piscotty. So, yeah, again, it was a matter of trying to fix what was wrong with the team while not moving the pieces that they wanted to be the core. And the fact that it happened when it did for the Piscotty family and allowed him to go where it did, um, like I said, I think that all factored into the decision-making process, but it certainly wasn't the... Uh, the source of the reason for trading him. You're right. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly where you fall. I wanted to also uh, touch on 
Tommy fan because I still uh, kind of hold a candle. I I, I still the, you know, a couple years after the fact I I don't quite understand that move at all. And I, I even though I do read and listen to you um, quite regularly, I don't know quite where you fall. But I, can you help me understand what that was all about? And and was there in your opinion, um, you know, something having to do with kind of his his outspoken personality and the famous SI article? And where, where do you fall on, on that? I cannot help you understand what it was about <laughs> because I have no idea. No. Um, it, it's, it's interesting because, again, I feel like the Cardinals were in a situation where they had a lot of pieces that maybe didn't really fit together. And I always uh, – I, I appreciated Tommy Pham for the edge that he had and the the talent that he brought and, you know, the excitement factor and, and maybe the, the little bit of um, aggressiveness in not the, like, nice, quiet Cardinals way <laughs> that changed the dynamic a little bit. I appreciated that. Honestly, I think that there were probably people in the organization that appreciated it as well. I would also say that I, I – don't find it hard to believe there would be people within the organization, teammates and otherwise, who didn't appreciate it, you know, mm-hmm. who it rubbed the wrong way. Um, nobody likes to be called out. And Tommy Pham was going to be the first guy to call you out mm-hmm. if he didn't think you were playing hard enough or he didn't think he made the right play or whatever the case might be. That's just sort of the nature of Tommy Pham. So it very well could have been that there was a dynamic that involved him that didn't seem like it was going to be positive and successful moving forward. Mm-hmm. That could have played into it. Um, you know, they're always going to say they moved him for the pitching that they got in return. I don't know that I buy into that entirely. I would say I don't think the SI article is the reason they traded Tommy Pham. Mm. Um, but again, you know, he's someone that was in the organization for a long time, right? He worked yeah. really hard to climb his way up and they knew very well who he was and honestly what he was capable at that po- of at that point. So mm. whatever the, the analysis was of Tommy Pham, it wasn't a snap decision. It wasn't moving anything too soon because he'd been around long enough that they knew what they were getting and they knew what came with that. So if it was a matter of personalities, whether it was between the, the manager and the player or between the front office and the player or the front office realizing when it comes time to pay this guy, it's going to be a headache trying to resolve some of that with him. Mm. Or if it was just about, you know, trying to find the right team chemistry, because at that point the Cardinals were not in a great position in a number of ways. And they were trying to kind of grasping at straws to figure out some way to right the ship And I will always wonder if that was the right move to do it because just because of the talent, right? Because of the raw ability of a a player like Tommy Pham. Um, But I I can't really explain it any further than that because I don't think we're ever going to get a clear explanation of why that move was made when it was made. Yeah. I I, I can't help but, but still go back to this impatience concept because I mean, I think with Gritchick, he's kind of always been about the same guy. I mean, he's, he's going to hit for some power, uh, but he's going to strike out. Um, and he's had fairly consistent seasons along those lines, but yeah, it just with, with Piscotty, there was the, uh, the year where he was somewhere around 25 homers, somewhere around 85, 90 RBIs with the Cardinals. 
And then it was just the one season where, you know, I think there was some interruptions by injury. Uh, you know, just one season later, he's he's moved. And of course, we already talked about the some of the other uh, external factors there. But then, you know, then you have Tommy Pham in 2017. He finishes 10th in the MVP voting <laughs> for the National League. Yeah. And then, you know, not even where it was all star break move in 2018, and he's and he's gone. And so, yeah, I just I help, can't help but go back a little bit to um, this concept that the that they've just been you know, a bit too impatient with some of these things. But I do I do also concede and understand all of those other external factors and points that you just ran through. I would also say, though, one important thing as far as Tommy Pham is concerned is that he wasn't always a top 10 MVP guy. He was mm-hmm. as inconsistent as anyone through the course of his professional career in part because he couldn't stay healthy Mm. whether it was his eyes or it was his ankles or it was you know whatever it was there were so many years in part that's why he stayed in the minor league so long because he kept losing at least part of a season seemingly almost every year and that creates a little bit of a, a track record as well right fair or not if you can't stay on the field then there's some basis of well, it's great when you're producing well, but we don't know how long that's going to last. So believe me, I'm not in any way trying to defend the Tommy Pham trade because I was as confused by it as anyone. Yeah. But it, there there are more pieces to it than just the two seasons where he seemed quite successful at the major league level. And I don't know that that's a good enough reason to trade him for pieces that were no guarantee at the time. Um, I don't know if that's a good enough reason to say, well, he's a little bit too aggressive for our style of communication. I don't know how you fit all of that in, but it's just another piece of the puzzle, right? They, like I said, he's he was in the organization for a long time. They all knew very clearly what he was and who he was and what they thought they could be uh, – what they thought they could get out of him in the future. And there was clearly a difference in what they thought and what he thought of himself. And perhaps for no other reason, that was always going to be a problem. Yeah. Well, before uh, I also want to transition here in a moment and, and kind of start to blend all this into, you know, what our thoughts and outlook are for the, for the 2020 outfield. But I, I had a couple other quick <laughs> complaints to run through. Um, one being just kind of, and uh, you know, again, the kind of a retrospective concept. It it bothers me a bit that the Cardinals had a commodity like Tyler O'Neill through the course of the 2018 and 2019 seasons, where you know he had kind of already proven at that point that AAA pitching just you know wasn't an issue for him. Uh, but yet here we are in 2020, and still you know kind of not really knowing um, what what it is he can be at the big league level. I think that's a little bit of a misstep. And then um, the other one was just um, kind of a, a couple names that, you know, throughout all this uh, churn and, and so on, the guys who have gotten significant outfield at bats who that, that maybe those at bats could have gone elsewhere um, to some of these younger guys that we're looking at for 2020 and, you know, names like Jose Martinez and, I mean, I love Jose Martinez, but the amount of time he got in the outfield over the course of, you know, Yairo Munoz, the outfield at bats he received, and and even, you know, Tommy Edmond, where not that I don't love Tommy Edmond in the lineup, but seeing him in the outfield as much as we did in 2019 was at times a bit odd. So, uh, yeah, those were just a couple other little complaints I had jotted down in terms of uh, looking at everything. 
Yeah, you know, I think it's important to remember with Jose Martinez that he was playing in the outfield because the Cardinals were desperate for offense. Yeah. And there was no other place. You can't play him anywhere else. (laughs) You can't, you can hide him a little bit in the outfield and still get that bat in the lineup. So he played as much as he did when Dexter Fowler was not able to play. And then all of a sudden they realized uh, we could get some more offensive production out of him because we're not getting it out of other players. So I think that Martinez imbalance of playing time was really more of an issue of what wasn't happening elsewhere in the lineup and trying to utilize every every bit of offense out of him that they could you know without losing too much on the defensive side so yeah I I understand completely that there may have been chances there for a Tyler O'Neill type but when Martinez was hitting well and no one else was it's hard to take him out of the lineup and then you know there's no other no other place really to put him. Mm-hmm. Um, Darryl Munoz is one that I will never understand why he ended up playing in the outfield like at all, but certainly as, as much as he did. And it wasn't like it was that much, but it was, it was enough that it was a little bit perplexing yeah. to say the least. I, I never really felt like his bat added a whole lot. Um, you know, he's one of those players that you, you have to have on your team because of the versatility and because you can plug him into so many different spots, but he didn't really add a whole lot to the overall ability of the team. And certainly not when you put him in the outfield, although perhaps a better arm than uh, the left fielder to (laughs) say the least. Um, And then as far as Tyler O'Neill is concerned, again, another guy who has had some really poorly timed injury issues that, that kind of kept him from gaining any momentum. Right. And then at some point in the year, it's kind of like, well, we can't just plug you in now and give you a chance to figure it out because even if what we have isn't what it could be if Tyler O'Neill was at his best, this is really the time to figure that out. So I think for the most part, some really unfortunately timed DL stints or IL rather stints for Tyler O'Neill in the last couple of seasons kind of derailed his major league progress. But I will say I was very confused by his usage or lack thereof at the end of the year in 2019, mm. where it was just like he basically didn't exist as an yeah. option for the Cardinals. And you saw so many guys get those at bats ahead of him, um, you know, in situations where it seemed like it would have been a perfect opportunity. So I think this spring training is really important for him because it's obvious to me that the front office really likes the potential of Tyler O'Neill but they need him to prove it. And he can't prove it if he's not given the chance to play, but he also can't prove it, you know, if he's, if he's injured and he's not in a position to play. So this spring with the opportunity available for him to really claim that left field spot, I think is huge just to kind of reset the, the Tyler O'Neill experiment for the Cardinals yeah. and remind them why he should be the one maybe leading the charge for that, that left field spot. Yeah, sure. Well, I think it would, Tyler, he was not even on the playoff roster, if I'm correct. Yeah. Was, was that right? Yeah. That's... Yeah. I think he, he got like two pinch hit at bats in all of September or something like that. Yeah, it was weird. It is. Um, well, let, let's use um, that as a perfect transition then into the 2020 outfield. You know, you're talking about Tyler O'Neill, and um, so that we can uh, spend a little bit of time here before we finish up talking about uh, the, the 2020 version of the outfield. And can they right some of these wrongs that we've been uh, going through? Uh, yeah, I think with Tyler O'Neill, the thing that I just hope for him for this year is you know, for health. And, you know, you mentioned the poorly timed injuries. But also, 
I think he has the type of swing and just the 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 type of run producer that he potentially is. He he needs to be to be in there. And I know that there's plenty of other guys that we also want to see, the guys like Lane Thomas and uh, certainly others as well. But I, I think if they if they put him in a situation where it's well, you know, four bats one day, and then you know maybe you wait around a couple of days, and then you get a pinch hit appearance, and then maybe another start, and then you sit a couple of games. I just think if if that's the way it's going to be, I, I don't think that's that's going to maximize uh, the potential of what he might be able to do. I think he needs regular at bats, and we saw that for a stretch in 2019. We're actually over a two week period. I think in July it was he he really was carrying the the offense during that short stretch. Yeah, I think that's the the potential that everyone has thought he had, right? Not just because of the raw power, but because of the athleticism and because of the way that he can, you know, play defense competently and and not lose anything as far as the comparison to someone else. I, I it's no surprise to anyone who's followed me on the internet in any form for any stretch that, that Colton Wong's my guy. Yeah. Um, I've been leading the Colton Wong charge since the very beginning, and, and most of that is because I, I watched him quite literally from his first day of pro ball, and mm. I saw the, the way he learned and the way he soaked everything in and the way that he wanted to get better and the, the passion that he had for playing defense at such a high level and using that to launch him to success offensively as well. But I made the argument so many times for so many seasons that you can't make Colton Wong a part-time player and expect him to live up to that potential. I think the same thing could be said for Tyler O'Neill. I, I know you mentioned Kyle Reese having talked to him about prospects. That's the argument he's been making about Tyler O'Neill for years mm-hmm. is that you're really not going to see his peak potential unless you let him play. And it's not always going to be pretty. I mean, someone who has that much home run power is – going to strike out sometimes and he's going to have to figure out how to combat that in one way or another and and still produce enough offensively that he's not just a guy that can hit 30 home runs but doesn't really do much of anything else because there are other guys on the roster there are other guys in that competition especially with Dylan Carlson on the horizon Mm -hmm. that are going to challenge that and that are going to make him have to find a different dimension to his offensive ability but I do think it's completely fair to say, you know, when it's Tyler O'Neill versus eight other guys for the same position, are you really going to see him consistently enough, give him enough time to make adjustments to really see how he can manage and, and how he can sustain some of that success at the major league level that we saw of him in AAA? So, like I said, I think this spring is really important. I also think, you know, as much as we've talked in in the Cardinals circle right about how they didn't do much this off season. I honestly think the clarity or at least the the path to some clarity by moving a number of those outfield options mm-hmm. was actually a really big deal yeah. because it's different when you're looking at Tyler O'Neill versus probably Lane Thomas as the two really in line for that left field position, as opposed to Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas and Jose Martinez and Adolis Garcia. And, you know, the list goes on. Randy Rosarina. (laughs) Right. Rosarina as well. So clearing some of the, the clutter, not because any of those guys couldn't have been successful, but because if you're really going to give one or two or three of those guys 
a fair chance. It needs to be one or two or three, not six or seven or eight, or you're never going to see enough of them. They're never going to be in a position to have the kind of success it takes to really claim that spot. So as much as they didn't go out and bring in a Nolan Arenado type or whatever it might be, I do think that moving some of those pieces was actually really important for the potential of letting those young guys play this year and seeing who can take over the spot. Yeah, I agree. I think that a lot of people have been fairly critical of the inactivity, I guess you may call it, of the Cardinals this offseason. But I do think the clearest move that should have and needed to be made was to thin out some of that outfield depth and, and to get you know a commodity like Libertor in return is is all the better and, and they were able to they were able to do that so I, I agree with that um Tara I've kept you for a while do you have a little more time there's a couple other outfielders sure. uh, yeah, okay um uh, just moving over to center field real quick I wonder how you um sort of look at or handicap the uh now you mentioned Thomas in left field which absolutely I mean he could compete for time there um but I guess I'm also looking at center field as well as perhaps sort of a Thomas Bader competition. And there's been a lot of, I mean, I think a lot of people hold the opinion that Bader's going to win all ties. If there's any kind of tie, or even if it's close that he's going to win the time there. Um, but of course, you know, the Cardinals have also been pretty vocal this off season about how much they like Lane Thomas. I wonder, I wonder in his, in, in that particular case, how much uh, spring results may potentially play in? Now, I know we've been told for years by all you know big league types, and I, I tend to believe it's true, that you can't really get too high or too low based on spring results. But, um, you know, I do wonder if Bader were to hit 200 over the course of spring and, and Lane Thomas hits 350, um, could we see Lane Thomas in, in center field on opening day? You know, several weeks ago now on our podcast, Chirps, with Alex Crisofoli, we were kind of predicting the opening day lineup with the caveat that these are kind of more the hot take version <laughs> of what we think could happen as opposed to necessarily this is what's likely going to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and one of my bold predictions was Lane Thomas as the opening day starter in center field. So okay. I could absolutely see that happening. I'm very curious to see what the work over this offseason has done for Harrison Bader, because it's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to post all the clips on social media. It's one thing to kind of push back against the idea that you've lost a step or that you're not going to live up to your potential like he's done a little bit. It's something totally different to actually prove that. And I think there's a lot of pressure on his shoulders at this point because he was kind of handed that job without a whole lot of proof of what he would be able to maintain. I mean, if at this point last offseason, the Cardinals had spent all winter propping up Harrison Bader as the face of the organization. And I never really got that because he's incredibly exciting. He's kind of like the classic Cardinals fan <laughs> brand. Mm -hmm. um, and that's great, but he hadn't really proven the ability to, to live up to that in a, a full season or in a second season. And we saw some of that struggle last year. So I think Harrison Bader is, is certainly susceptible to losing playing time to a guy like Lane Thomas, who is in, in many ways as talented, perhaps not as elite defensively, but great in his own right and who can maybe hold his own a, a little bit more consistently on the offensive side. So yeah. again, I think to some degree it's going to matter what 
the Cardinals end up needing out of the spring, right? Do they look like a team that's going to be an offensive powerhouse? Because if they are, then you keep Harrison Bader in center field because of his defense anyway. But if it looks like they're going to need more of that offensive boost and Lane Thomas has a terrific spring, then maybe you go that route. I will, though, say I honestly think that if we're talking about who the four outfielders are going to be that'll be in rotation, it's going to be Dexter Fowler, Harrison Bader, Tyler O'Neill, and Lane Thomas anyway. So it's just going to be a mixture of who gets the, the the most starts in what position. The wild card, obviously, is Dylan Carlson. If he comes in and blows the roof off in the spring, I don't really expect him to be on the opening day roster, but I would love for him to make it interesting. Sure. Well, going back to Bader real quick, I mean, you can even link uh, his emergence back to the to the Tommy Pham trade even. I mean, I think that was part of the, the – thought process or reasoning was that they had, you know, the Bader as this up and coming, um, you know, center field type that may, maybe they felt made fam a little bit more expendable, but um, uh, the, I've always viewed Bader uh, as really the perfect, I, I, I sometimes uh, frustrated or wonder why I don't hear the, the viewpoint more that why, you know, why do we have to, everyone wants to view him only, as well, you know, okay, he's the starter or he isn't. And I think there's a very nice, happy medium where, I mean, Harrison Bader potentially is a perfect fourth outfielder because you have a guy that can come in in late innings and provide elite defense. He has a pinch runner. He, he's exciting and electric on the bases with the speed. I mean, he still needs to work on his base stealing, but, um, and then, he hits left-handers, so when you have a you know a left-handed starter and you want to perhaps a platoon type situation, he, he can handle those at bats. So yeah, I'm not sure why. Um, you know, it just seems like sometimes Cardinal fans just look at him either as well he's the everyday guy or you know get rid of him. You know, it's there's a, there's a a medium there. Now one other quick point, um, throw it back to you, but. You mentioned wildcard and Dylan Carlson, which yeah, I completely agree in what he can do. But there's another wild card that uh, we haven't mentioned, and now and Kyle and I talked about this. But uh, if the Cardinals are committed to Matt Carpenter, uh, getting a month or two to really see what what he's going to be at third base, Tommy Edmonds going to play the outfield too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean that that's going to be they're going to play Tommy Edmonds. He's going to get at bats, and there there's going to be. You know, occasional at bats at short and second, but the, you know those are established everyday guys there with the young and Wong. So, you know, where are his bat- bats going to come? I think um, could very well see him maybe more than anyone's really thinking uh, in the outfield. Yeah, I, I certainly expect that to happen. Honestly, I think that Tommy Edmond is going to be that that. Weird combination of super utility guy, but also who starts every day. He's going to kind of be the Ben Zobrist guy who can start at yeah. a different position every day of the week. And I think they're going to utilize that, at least until there is a clear spot where he fits better than someone else. And they don't also need that person's offense in the lineup. So what happens with Matt Carpenter is going to be really interesting this season. But to kind of stick to the outfield, yeah, I think Tommy Edmonds certainly in that mix, which make some of those other guys maybe a, a less of a sure thing as far as their playing time. Um, but I, I don't know that – I would love to see a, a more reasonable mix of some of those guys getting those uh, innings, getting those 
games, getting those starts in the outfield positions. That certainly includes Tommy Pham, but doesn't necessarily eliminate Elaine Thomas, for example, or even a Harrison Bader at some point, or Tyler O'Neill if he struggles this spring and they allow him the opportunity to, um, you know, start the year on the major league roster anyway, and he has to kind of fight his way back from that. Um, one other thing, as as far as Bader is concerned, mm-hmm. and kind of the expectations of him. In part, I think this really circles back to what we were talking about earlier with Grichik and Piscotti and Tommy Pham in that I I wonder sometimes if the Cardinals, from a front office perspective, from a, a promotions perspective, latch on to a player too soon mm. and elevate them too quickly, much like they did last offseason with Harrison Bader. So there is this expectation that he's the guy right? Not yeah. he's one of the options. He's the guy. Yeah. And that sort of happened with Stephen Piscotti. That happened with Randall Gritchick. That happened with Tommy Pham. It happened with Harrison Bader, where there was this skyrocket to the top where all of a sudden it looked like this is the guy that's going to change everything for us. And somehow enough people bought into that, that they convinced an entire fan base mm-hmm. to buy into it as well. Yeah. And then when you start talking about pulling back some of that expectation, that's when it seems like, oh, well, he, he must not really be a starter then. He's he's just going to choke. He's not going to live up to expectations. When the reality is the expectations probably shouldn't have been that high in the first place. And I, I think there's some of that that happened with Bader that also happened with those other three guys. And then you kind of have to backtrack and figure out where you go from there. I mean, the same thing happened with Colton Wong, right? He was a, a first-round draft pick. When he came up, he was supposed to be this young stud who was going to take over the position. And then, uh, in part because of the weird focus of the manager and yeah. the, the fact that there was always this veteran kind of creeping over his shoulder, which is a whole different story. We don't have to go down that road <laughs> at this point. But the same thing kind of happened, right? There were these sky-high expectations. Yeah. Everyone bought in immediately, thought this was going to be the next big thing. And then when it didn't pan out immediately, you kind of have to figure out how to scale that back. So I think that's what this season is for Harrison Bader. Everyone had to figure out how to scale back those expectations after last year. Now it's up to him to reestablish what a realistic expectation is, not just the one brought on by all the hype of the great first half of a season that he played as a major leaguer. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple there's one other significant person I want to talk about before we um, finish up, but just to the, there are a couple other outfielders on the 40 man. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Ira Munoz and his ability to play a little bit of outfield. They're saying that Ron Helvervello may play a little bit of out, outfield and potentially be a right-handed bat off the bench. And you've got Austin Dean and the, the pickup that they had recently for him with the Marlins and then Justin Williams, a left-handed bat who also came over in the Tommy Pham trade. Um, I guess real quick, is there any kind of expectation you might have out of, of any of those guys? I don't think any of those are necessarily going to take over the, the headlines at this point. I think those are all going to be guys that will get some time, mm-hmm. but are not going to be the pieces that I'll put it this way. If those guys are on the opening day roster as outfielders for this team, something went wrong. (laughs) And that's not a knock on those guys, right? It's just that there are players ahead of them on the depth chart that should claim those spots that should be, you know, actual outfielders, for example, (laughs) instead of infielders who are suddenly going to become outfielders. 
so it's not a knock on those players because they all have a, a spot. They all have a value. We saw Ravello last year come into some big places and, and come up with some big hits. I would love to see him get the opportunity, but at some point there are too many players and not enough spots. So if those guys end up being key pieces on the opening day roster, it's because someone else didn't live up to expectations. So I think every one of those players, whether it's Justin Williams, who really has, has, maybe not been talked about, but maybe should have been talked about in the same conversation with all of it's because there are 900 outfield prospects. <laughs> you can't keep track of them all. Um, and Austin Dean was a piece that was kind of like, Oh, okay. That doesn't really make anything better. It's just another guy to fill another spot. But anyway, so I, that, that's sort of my take on it. And it <laughs> sounds, sounds a bit harsh, but I, I think the reality is if you look at the spots that are available, those guys aren't going to be the first names on your mind for those spots. Um, I think the Ravello thing is, is probably the most intriguing to me simply because that came up as a direct answer to the Jose Martinez move. It was kind of like he was going to go play overseas and then he wasn't because they moved Martinez, which might mean he could have that spot, but I still don't know how that really makes him fit. Although I will say he could be, um, you know, a, a true backup to Paul Goldschmidt as a first baseman, so I can see him making the roster, but not necessarily because he's factoring in as an outfielder. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's more of a, uh, I think he will have a role. And even if it's sort of yeah. as that 26th man, because right. you need, I mean, you need guys in the national league in the seventh, eighth and ninth innings uh, who are going to go in against tough relievers and give you a professional good at bat. And I think Ravello profiles as a guy that can yeah. potentially do that. Um, but perhaps Dean as well, uh, because, you know, you, one thing I looked at with him is that his 2018 minor league season now last year, he was up and down a little bit, but, uh, his 2018 minor league season was actually very similar to the one that a Rosarina put forth last year. And of course, everyone was clamoring for more at bats and more time for a Rosarina based on what he had done. Um, the, the Williams is also intriguing to me in that he's a left-handed bat because yeah. you look at these the outfield mix and it's it's almost entirely right-handed with with Bader and Thomas and O'Neill uh even you know guys like Ravello and Dean and Munoz it's all right-handed now of course there's a switch hitting Fowler and we talked about Edmund but um so you've been so generous with your time I but there's one other I think I mean Dylan Carlson is yeah. we we did touch on him he's he's uh, in the mix but I guess the elephant in the room that we haven't really gotten into and I do want to ask you about is Dexter Fowler because even um, in some of the discussion we had on our retrospective, uh, you know, you could sort of make the case that at times he may have been in a way blocking other potential moves or younger guys that you would would have wanted to see more of. And, you know, here we are now in year four of the contract I just, I really wonder how the year is going to play out for him. I think, you know, obviously if he's uh, productive and, and hitting, then you're very happy and you, you just, you, you play him on, on an almost everyday basis. But I just, um, I wonder what the trigger is going to be or how it's going to play out if we're six weeks into the season and he's, you know, for hitting, uh, 220 or 230 and not really putting a whole lot together will, you know, how will the Cardinals deal with that situation? And I, and I don't want to project before the season even starts that that's going to happen, but I think it's um, 
certainly a very interesting thing to keep an eye on. Yeah, the Dexter Fowler situation has been such a roller coaster, right? I was very pleased with the addition of Dexter Fowler, although, you know, we can talk about the terms of the contract and whether that was wise or not. But at the time, it was kind of the Cardinals doing what they had to do to get the the player that they thought was the best available in in that offseason. And there are plenty of arguments to think that that was the case. I do think that the the value of Dexter Fowler on this roster has shifted dramatically since then, in part because of his inconsistency, in part because it's just sort of the coming of age of all of these young outfielders, right? Mm-hmm. And you have to figure out what to do with them. So it's almost just a, a timing thing as much as anything. As far as Dexter Fowler in 2020, I think if you look at it on paper, there's a good argument to be made that he's not one of the best three or four outfielders that are options. And I think that has to be something in the minds of particularly Mike Schilt as he comes up with playing time. Cause we know Dexter Fowler is going to be on the roster, right? Oh, That's not the, the question is different for him than it is for all of those other guys that we just talked about. So for him, it's about playing time and it's about how much of that he can claim by his production, as opposed to, trying to claim not that he's trying to claim it but that that will be given to him because of his status because of his experience because of it to some degree the contract and that's going to be the the challenge for Mike Schilt this year particularly when you look at those young guys that are going to actually need time in games in the regular season so that you get a good feel for who they can be as major league baseball players and you got to figure how Dexter Fowler fits into all of that now I will say if you're looking at an outfield of Dexter Fowler, Harrison Bader, or Lane Thomas, and Tyler O'Neill, it's probably a good thing to have someone with uh, a, some level of experience in that mix, right? Mm-hmm. So that plays into it somehow. For me, rather than looking at batting average for Dexter Fowler, I'm going to be yeah. looking at on-base OBP. percentage yeah, because that's, that's how you judge the success rate of Dexter Fowler. When he's yeah. going well, it's because he's getting on base. And when he starts to get on base like that, he's going to be – pitch differently and then he's going to hit doubles and then he's going to score runs and then you see the best version of Dexter Fowler if he's getting on base and he can be that true leadoff guy then you can utilize everyone else in that lineup a bit differently you can structure it so that you're getting the best you're you're taking advantage of everyone in maybe a, a better position than they have been in years past what will what will complicate that mix is if Dexter Fowler struggles to get on base. Yeah. And that is when you know, I feel like you have to see that playing time eventually go to someone else. I will also say I don't think it will take as long this year as mm-hmm. it did in 2019 because 2019 they made a big deal about kind of recommitting to Dexter Fowler and giving mm-hmm. him every chance to earn that starting role. And in to, to many degrees, I think he did that, right? He didn't it wasn't always consistent, but there were times where Dexter Fowler at his best was leading the charge. When it was Dexter Fowler and Colton Wong at the top of the lineup, there were some really exciting things happening with that offense when he's at his best. So it's a matter of him consistently getting on base. As far as I'm concerned, if he's not doing that, there's not a lot of gap between him and those other guys at this point. And I would expect that the proverbial leash will be a little shorter this year than it was last year because of the options that they have available. Yeah. I mean, on base percentage is absolutely the key with him, just like it kind of is with Matt Carpenter as well, but you're absolutely right when you say that. And and yeah, there were, it crashed and burned a little bit in the playoffs, but there was a stretch. um, Who did it? (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) But there was a stretch where, 
you know, and was really down, down, down the stretch when they, you know, were able to win the division where a nice little stretch of games where Fowler was batting lead off, getting on base, making things happen. And that's the best version of him that you hope that, you know, he maybe can put together for, for most of a full season. But I think, you know, I said the same thing about Bader, but I also think with Dexter Fowler, it's, I mean, despite the contract, uh, there's nothing wrong necessarily with the idea of him as a, a potential fourth outfielder spot because he's a switch hitter. He's a you know big league, longtime big league outfielder, so you have to you know you have to know that he can. He's already proven he can play right and center. If he had to, he could play left field, I'm sure. And so, in, in a guy that's going to you know, give you a tough at bat off the bench in, in a given game if he's not in the starting lineup, so. Uh, you know, it's it's not the end of the world to say that, well, you know, Dexter Fowler gets 250 to 350 plate appearances as a fourth outfielder. But we'll we'll have to wait and see. I think, you know, Tara, I think we've been pretty thorough, um, if I do say so myself, uh, even though uh, our friend Dylan Carlson maybe uh, didn't get quite the due, uh, but he, there'll be plenty of other chances to talk about him yeah, in the future. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, certainly know that the the majority of folks that would uh, do me the honor of listening to the podcast are, are very well aware of your work. However, I do I post um, you know the podcast episodes that I do on on my personal Facebook, and a lot of my friends are certainly fans, but maybe not quite immersed in the the blogosphere and the Twitterverse maybe as much as. Um, those on Twitter who would know and listen to you. So please just, um, you know, run through for us where, you know, where someone can find you, where they can find your work, where they can follow you and so on. Sure. Yeah, I I appreciate that. Uh, You can follow me on Twitter at Tara Wellman. And that's really the greatest starting point if you're looking for stuff that I do, because I pretty much share it all there. But you can also find me over at Birds on the Black. I do host or co-host rather a podcast for Birds on the Black. It's called Chirps, and you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts under the Birds on the Black um, podcast name. So there are a couple of different podcasts that the people from the site do. Mine is called Chirps, and I do that with Alex Crisofoli every week. And I also am on a podcast with Daniel Shapta that has been on this show okay. um, recently as well. We yeah. do a show every Sunday called Gateway to Baseball Heaven. Again, you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, I kind of fell off the the YouTube wagon a little bit when life real life got complicated uh, about midway through the season last year, but you can find stuff there as well. Again, you can just search my name on YouTube, Tara Wellman, or the channel is called bird seeds. And there's a ton of content there from last season. Hopefully we'll be doing um, some fun new stuff as the season approaches this year as well. Yeah. If you're, if you're a, a diehard Cardinal fan, uh, like I'm sure most people would be that listen to this and you're not um, regularly checking out Birds on the Black website, you're definitely missing out. And certainly Tara's a major piece of what all the things that they do over there. So um, Tara, thank you so much again. I, I was hoping to, you know, for 30 to 45 minutes and we've, we've gone an hour. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. No but one I, has ever accused me of being concise. So. <laughs> well, I, I, and I, I can go on. I can go on for days as well. So I'm glad, uh, glad, glad we had the chance to do this. Perhaps, you know, in the future, maybe we get a little closer to opening day. You might consider um, coming back on. So, uh, appreciate your time and thank you so much. 
Sounds great. Thank you. Okay. And thank you to everyone for listening. 